Welcome to the Craig Selinger Podcast. Sit back and relax while listening to popular topics from educators, therapists, and doctors. Craig Selinger, New York City speech language pathologist, learning specialist, owner of Brooklyn Letters and Temba Tutors, will break it down so you enjoy learning more about a wide range of topics by connecting you with experts in the field. Clinical neuropsychologist Vitika Mukherjee here. Did I say it right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think the last name I butchered a little bit. I love it. We got them. Okay. But please let us know how to correctly enunciate your full name. It's Vitika Mukherjee. Mukherjee. Thank you. Sorry about that. We've known each other for a while, and I always I, I always avoid saying your last name. I always call your call your doctor Vitika. But I'm really excited you're here. And uh, please let the listeners know more about that, you know, start with graduate school and, and, and till today about your training and how you're a clinical neuropsychologist. What's a, what's a neuropsychologist? Please let us know. I think that's a great question. So I, I yeah. will start with undergrad. So I- oh, Even better, yeah. Undergrad in India. Oh, wow. Um, so I will okay. start here. I did my undergrad in psychology. Um, and in India, the undergrad is three years. So it's not a four-year undergrad. So, and I knew that I wanted to apply to PhD programs in the U.S. And for that, I needed four years of undergrad, which I didn't have. Mm -hmm. So I did two years of master's in clinical psychology in India. Okay. So I became a clinical psychologist after the master's in India and then applied to the U.S. programs. Um, at that point, I had no idea what neuropsychology was. Really? <laughs> so at that point, was- so so okay. So you get your ma- so you're in India before your master's to your master's. You but you knew you wanted to be a psychologist. Yes. So I why- knew I wanted to work yeah. with kids, and okay. I knew I wanted to do in the clinical field. But so why? But why did you? So what piqued that interest at the at the time so that that started very early on for me in high school I really got interested in psychology um there were family experiences that that I had that led me to read about psychology a lot mm-hmm. and I started feeling that you know the the resources that I was we didn't have internet at that point this I'm talking about like early 90s, mid 90s. Um, So I would go to the libraries and get books, but I would not get the information that I needed. So in India, you were interested in psychology. So you started going to the library to learn more about psychology? Yes. And did not get much. Because, okay. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, the understanding in India or even the knowledge of what psychology is was not prevalent. Um, and even my parents were like, what are you trying to do? Like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Like, they were not very supportive of me being a psychologist. But, but I got more and more intrigued in the understanding of behavior, the understanding of how people react, the emotions. Um, all that at that point i had no awareness of learning difficulties or attentional difficulties my my focus was more about how children develop um Mm -hmm. how children react or why do some children react one way and others don't like that was where 
I was going with the clinical psychology piece. So, so it's interesting, like, so the field of psychology is not well developed in India, but, you know, I, I know a little bit about Indian culture. They're very, they are big on education and family structure. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just something culturally, they just, they just knew without the field of psychology that it's just really important to educate for families to be a cohesive unit. You know, I know the grandparents and aunts and uncles are a big piece of the picture. So it's just, it's just the science might not be there, but it's kind of instinctually, they just knew as a culture, as a fabric, like this is really important in a way. Does that sound like a weird question or? No, no, it's not a weird question. It's, okay. it's basically, I think it's the cultural difference. So there, okay. there's no understanding of what that does to it. Interesting. But it, is, okay. it is something that has happened for so long and, and it is going on, the, the fabric or mm -hmm. the way, but but what does not go on is the talking of emotions outside. Oh, got it. Okay, that's the big, okay, got it. So if you have, okay. say, if you're anxious or you're depressed, nobody will talk about it to anyone, but keep it to either the closest family or to themselves, mm -hmm. because these things are not to be talked about outside. So, um, so let's say you're an American family uh, that's interested in pursuing professional help. They're going to let outsider in, in a sense, right? Whereas mm -hmm. in India, you're saying when when you were a college student, that was not the norm. You would not. No. no. Okay. Got it. No. Okay. No. So that that is why my parents questioned about what will you do? Like becoming a psychologist. Like what does it even mean? What mm -hmm. are you going to do? Because mm -hmm. that that whole idea of somebody coming to you for help. It, for for that reason does not exist. No, that so that makes now I get it. That makes sense. So again, so one and we'll talk. I'm sure more about India and the, and the cultural differences. So let's say back in college, you know, there was a family. Obviously, you weren't a psychologist yet, and their their child's struggling in school, right? So mm -hmm. how do you how would they they would just navigate with the school, navigate within the family, what to do? And I guess I would I would assume that they would take the school input and then kind of work together to figure out what the best solution is? So, yeah. So the, the yeah. support for learning difficulty mm -hmm. did not exist, at least, at least when I was growing up. Okay. Um, I'm sure things are a little bit different now. Um, mm -hmm. I have not been in India for, for a while, so right. I'm not sure how the educational system is, is going. Um, but at that point, the understanding or even the support for it did not exist. I mean, what, what do you mean you have learning or reading disorder or you have dyslexia? Like that, those, those terms did not exist at that point, right? So, the so it's, it's, it's almost like a denial in a way because like it doesn't exist. This doesn't make sense, right? In a way, would you, how would you sum that up? I would not say denial. Okay. I would say lack of knowledge. Lack like, of knowledge. Okay. Yeah. So there's no knowledge okay. that this even exists. Mm -hmm. Like there, there is a learning disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Which, which is created because of differences in the how the brain develops. Like that, mm -hmm. that did not exist at that point. So. If, if you're a bright kid, you're doing well in school, great, or you're a mediocre, or you fail. And if you fail, then you are in trouble with your family, and you'll get tutors or something to kind of pass somehow. So, so I would imagine back in grad school, this must have been really exciting. It's like you're, you're like, wow, I'm getting privy to information that others don't really have. And it must have been like you're opening these doors to like, wow, this is, this is just like something that I would not be able to 
really pursue in India, and I have to come. Mm -hmm. I would assume to the United States in order to 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 learn more about this field, right? Absolutely. So when I started doing that research mm -hmm. of like, okay, where do I go and what do I need to do mm -hmm. um, to get there? I got so overwhelmed because there, again, psychology is, is not just one field. There mm -hmm. is so many subdivisions to psychology that you can go towards. So I was only, I knew about clinical psychology because that was something that I was interested in working with kids clinically. So quick, quick question for the audience. So in the United States, right? I mean, there's school psychologists that have master's degrees, then there's PhD psychologists, clinical psychologists, neuropsychologists. Can you just let the audience know like how that kind of works? Like let's say, or maybe like say there's a, a college student right now that's interested in, in pursuing psychology. Can you just give a quick breakdown of how that, how that shakes out? So, so yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many. So you said about, you talked about clinical psychology, there's school psychologists, there's developmental psychologists, there's counseling psychology, there is organizational psychology. So there are so many different fields and there are specializations. So you can do a PhD in mm -hmm. any of these fields, right? So you can, or, or master's, um, you can become a master in counseling psychology and then become a counselor. Um, you can do a master's in organizational psychology and work in HR in one of the companies and organizations. You can do a master's in school psychology and become a school psychologist. Um, to become a clinical licensed clinical psychologist mm -hmm. or a neuropsychologist, you have to do a PhD. Okay. So master's. So for to get that licensure, you need to complete your PhD and do a postdoctoral training. So, post, then, so with postdoc, how many years is that? So for school psychologists, clinical psychologists, that's a year, one okay. year of postdoc training. For okay. neuropsychology, it's two years of specialization. Got it. So you came to the United States and you went all the way to the finish line. You said, nothing's <laughs> stopping me. Here I come. <laughs> so, tell, yes. so tell us about, yeah, tell us a little bit about that, um, about so, your experience. So when I came to the United States, um, right. I came in and as I said, I started doing the research and there were so many different fields that I had no idea what mm -hmm. it was. And, and then I got confused about what I wanted to do. Um, mm -hmm. And neuropsychology still was not on the horizon because it was not something um, that many schools don't have PhD in neuropsychology, right? So it's not that it is a program. There are very few schools now, it's, it's more and more, but it was a new field um, mm -hmm. of specialization. So I so, did not- So dumb, dumb question. So you say new field, so why is it new? In terms of yeah. understanding that there, there needs to be a program for just neuropsychology. Okay, okay. Right? So most okay. neuropsychologists either did their PhD in school psychology or clinical psychology or developmental and then went on to do a specialization okay. um, in neuropsychology. Got it. And, and so, so that, that is where it's, it's like not, you know, not everybody has, has a PhD in neuropsychology. Got like it. Even I don't have, I have a PhD in school clinical psychology. Got um, it. And then I went on to do my specialization. So when I came here to the country, I was like, okay, I need to do a master's again, just to understand what the different fields are um, and to know what I really wanted to do and specialize. So you did your undergrad, two years master's in India, came to the United <laughs> States, got another master's. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and that is when I, I 
triggered, I, I started understanding about neuropsychology and became really, really interested that that, and so, that that was something I wanted to do. So where'd you get your master's? At NYU. At NYU, got it, okay. <laughs> so you graduate with your master's at NYU and then what happens? And then I applied to the PhD program. They had, they had, they don't have it anymore, a school, mm -hmm. clinical school, uh, PhD program. Okay. So I applied to that, um, knowing that, you know, that is something that, that would lead me to the neuropsychology piece. So I started doing my research, taking classes in neuroanatomy and neurobiology and just getting to get to know the field a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, doing my externships, which is basically doing training while you're doing your PhD program. So I did my externships, um, doing testing, understanding different tests, um, then did my internship where neuropsychology was a piece in the internship program, um, finished my PhD and then did a two-year specialization in um, postdoctoral training. So when did you do your postdoc? So the postdoc was in the hospital. So it was the Roosevelt Hospital, the Beth Israel Hospital, St. Luke's, and then a private practice. It was a rotation. Okay. Um, I was on the epilepsy unit um, in Beth Israel. I was in the psychiatric outpatient unit in St. Luke's. I was in an autism center at Roosevelt, and then it was all combination and private. Got it. So throughout New York City, you're making the rounds of these hospitals, getting different <laughs> clinical experiences. Yeah. So then, so then you you get your postdoc. I mean, you complete your post to your postdoc, and and then and then what happens from there? So then, um, I started the a clinic. Saint Luke's decided to start a clinic in neuropsychology, um, mm -hmm. and I started working there as a neuropsychologist, um, seeing kids teenagers, young adults doing evaluations and, and figuring out what's going on. Um, I stayed with St. Luke's Roosevelt, which was then taken over by Mount Sinai until 2015. Okay. Um, and doing all the neuropsych evaluations, training postdocs, training interns, um, working with the trainees there. And mm -hmm. then in 2015, I started my private practice. Got it. So 2015, you start your private practice and now you're, which means you're on your own, right? So, yes. right. Okay. So you start your private practice. So, so tell, tell us about your private practice. So in my private practice, again, I see children. I start anywhere around two years ago up until young adults. Um, so in the early twenties, um, I work with very different kind of, um, disorders, uh, difficulties. So the questions that come in are like, you know, the, the kid is having difficulty in school. We don't know what's going on. Um, because I have an extensive background in clinical psychology uh, and was trained as a clinical psychologist, I, I understand the, the comorbidity between learning, attentional difficulties, and clinical difficulties. So things like depression, anxiety, um, bipolar, schizophrenia, psychosis, like any of those psych psychological difficulties and how they impact learning um, or attentional issues or their behaviors in school. So I try to evaluate and differentially diagnose what's going on with the child um, to provide the diagnosis, the plan of treatment and interventions and supports both at school and at home. So, um, so there's a lot to break down here. So in a sense, what it sounds like, it's almost like you're a detective, right? You have these, these yeah. symptoms, right? 
um, and it's kind of your responsibility, your job to see what's driving, like, you know, you may see these surface behaviors, right? But we don't know why this is happening, right? And it's, and, and mm -hmm. the neuropsychology, it, the reason it's so comprehensive is that it's so, sorry, freaking complicated. It's not like you see something and can necessarily explain it. You got to really dig deep, right? And I know that in the field of neuropsychology yes. or any sort of assessments, it's you, you, what you do is you try to exclude. It's like you have a piece of data. It's like, not it, not it. Oh, this is interesting. Let me look a little mm -hmm. bit closer, right? And then, then maybe another little bit closer mm -hmm. and how do these two things or three and you're juggling and how they interact right can you can you just explain us to the, yeah how that how, kind of how that works so i i'll do it with an example okay. so um parents come in um teachers have been saying that you know joey does not pay attention in class and joey's not listening uh gets distracted parents come in with a question of we don't know what's going on why is joey not paying attention Right. So now my job becomes to look at Joey's attentional skills, mm -hmm. but that inattention or distractibility could be coming from because Joey does not understand what's going on within the classroom. Mm -hmm. Right. So Joey's language skills might not be where they need to be. And so the teacher is saying something at the at, at a pace where Joey cannot keep up. Mm -hmm. So Joey loses attention because he has no idea what's going on. So they put you right there. So let's say the same example of families. Well, but Joey at home, he follows directions. He's okay. I don't understand why the school's complaining that he's having these these issues at school, right? Absolutely. Okay. And that is where it becomes really, really important in these evaluations to see what's going on in the classroom. So to understand the classroom behaviors, because they can be completely different than what's going on at home. And then as a neuropsychologist, you see the child in your office setting, which is, again, a completely different context. So this is you. Right? So you have three months. Yeah. So like, this is something that it's really hard to explain to, to parents. How, how can, when you, your, your child that you know, you see, and you may not, and it could be, it could be the opposite, right? It could be a child that you're having a lot of difficulties at home, but they're an angel at school, right? My, my question is, how come, yes. how come context matters? Why does the environment matter? And how does, how do multiple environments elicit different behaviors? So the demands are different right, in different environments and contexts. So in school, Joey is with 20 other kids, or maybe some, in some cases, 30 other kids. Um, and there's one teacher teaching, and Joey has no idea what's going on with that 30 other students, right, and, and feels really bad about himself. At home, he's been talked to one-on-one. -on -one. The dad, mm -hmm. dad, dad or mom is telling him what to do. They're sitting with him. They're talking to him. There's a lot more attention. There's a lot less distractibility. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so Joey can focus and they can focus on him. The same with with the evaluation process. Right. So when I am seeing Joey in my in my office, Joey is just one on one with me. I can mm -hmm. redirect him. I can get him back to work. I, I can support him when he needs that, which is not the case that's going to happen in the classroom. So the, the evaluation context is very different than the classroom context. And that is where it becomes extremely important to understand different contexts. So th this may not be the best analogy. And I, I've never had this done, but um, I'm imagining, let's say you're a doctor and someone might have some sort of heart issues, right? Maybe they, like the stress test, right? Maybe they put you on the treadmill and you're just kind of walking and your heart's mm -hmm. fine. Now there's an incline and now all of a sudden you're stressing your heart and maybe they'll 
elicit some sort of irregularity. We're like, okay, there's something going on here that's not normal. But at rest or at a low pace, you're okay. But there's something exactly. that we need, we need to look a little bit closer at when, when you're taxing your, your yes. heart. Okay. So, yes. so you have Abs absolutely, okay. and, and that is a great yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're looking at multiple contexts, and, and I'm assuming you're trying to find maybe some sort of breaking point, or maybe when their their uh, their system, when their say their learning system. I know that their cognitive profile, which is um, which is again, it's a term many people may not understand, but let's call it like their their learning. So during your during your testing, are you kind of sometimes taxing them to see what their breaking point is? I don't want to sound like it's 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 uh, you're inflicting pain on them, but you're, you're providing maybe uh, an attentional task or reading task or um, some sort of organizational task that may be become difficult for them, right? And they may have some difficulties. And, and now you're actually experiencing them breaking yeah. down, like, wow, I'm getting overwhelmed, this is hard, or, and you actually could see that in action, right? Absolutely, absolutely, okay. and, and that is the whole point. So the whole point of the profile, the cognitive profile, is to see what the strengths are, so mm -hmm. what are the things that come easy to them? And, and they do it with no effort at all. Mm -hmm. What are the things that don't come easy and they have to put in that effort and the demands are higher for their cognitive resource and how do they tackle those tasks? So the, the and, and I always said that to my trainees as well, it's, you know, the scores just give you a snapshot of what it was. It's the process of a, how a child gets to get that score, right? So there, there are kids who are extremely bright and mm -hmm. would get like average scores on tasks, but it is so difficult for them to do that. And they're so overwhelmed and they need the support to even get that score. Um, and that process is extremely important to understand. So let's say you're okay. You're evaluating a school-age student, and uh, let's say you're you're doing the neuropsych evaluation, and you start giving them some harder tasks. Now the student, let's say, does well with literacy-based reading, writing, writing, oral mm -hmm. language, listening. They're phenomenal, but for some reason with math, they're really struggling. So mm -hmm. why why would that be? Why would a you know someone who let's say does really well on an IQ test, but now you're working on math and they're, it's very specific to math that they're breaking down. Why would they break down on math and not all academic tasks? It's a great question because, so now every different, different kinds of academic work requires different kinds of cognitive resources. So it's not like one section, right? Like this section here is for all tasks, right? No. I'm like, uh, yeah. uh, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, love I know. <laughs> this is your brain. <laughs> so, so exp explain. So, with the, to the neuroanatomy, not not down to every specific aspect of the brain, but it's not it's it's not one localized area that deals with all academics, right? No, no, it's not because if you think about it, reading has a huge language component to it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need working memory, which is basically holding on to the information you're reading to be mm -hmm. able to understand what you're reading, right? So if you cannot hold on to that information, your language skills might be fine, 
but you are losing all that information so you cannot make sense at all what you read um but math on the other hand is let's take the word problem out the word problem right, right, of course yes language yeah yeah, yeah. But just the computation piece is not language-based. It's very mm -hmm. visual-based, right? It's a visual representation. You should be able to make that visual map of those numbers of mm -hmm. what are you going to do with them. You also need working memory to hold on to that, but you need a lot of organizational and planning skills to know that when do you regroup, when do you take over, when you carry over, when do you break it down? Like, you know, so, so all that needs to go on to be able to do math. Got it. Then so, writing becomes yes. even more complicated. Got it. Right? So, because writing then also requires motor. Got it. And, that, and that's why neuropsychs are so comprehensive because you may evaluate, for example, uh, working memory, and then you how how is that in relation to maybe reading comprehension? How is working memory related to uh, again with math? As I'm saying, a very general statement. It depends on the type of math. They, they may struggle with geometry mm -hmm. versus word problems, which could be very different exactly. underlying mechanisms. So you so you really try to break down yeah. like within math ex specifically where are they having difficulties, and also same thing with reading. Reading reading also is broken down into different neurodevelopmental skills. So it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's like that investigative yeah. work where it's like maybe, okay, maybe the, the problem is more within math. Now let's break down the math to see maybe where they're having mm -hmm. difficulties. Or maybe it's not math. Maybe it's, it's something uh, which is like a hot term, which we don't have to go into, like executive functioning and how that might impact you know, uh, say reading or studying, et cetera. So you, so, you, so the student does this neuropsych um, evaluation, and again, it, which is also they, they do that, and then and then you also consult with the school, and then and also which is we haven't really talked about is the background piece, right? Mm -hmm. And t tell us more about how you obtain background yes. information. Yes, and that is extremely important to understand what's going on, right? Because if it just started happening um, in the last two weeks versus Joey has been struggling since he started school, um, mm. very different understanding of what's going on. So yeah, so I asked the parents to provide all the report cards, any evaluations that might have happened along the way, any kind of medical diagnosis that, that you know, a child might have. Um, it is extremely important to understand that piece um, because understanding of what has been going on will give more information. I'm getting a snapshot of Joey right now, right? Mm -hmm. But Joey has been developing these difficulties or has had these difficulties and has developed other issues like anxiety along the way because mm -hmm. he's been dealing with these things. So that gives me a lot of information about um, his life and development, because most of these disorders, be it learning difficulties or attention difficulties, are developmental disorders. Mm -hmm. They don't so just what do you come mean, about. Yeah, what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, what, what do you mean by developmental? Developmental means that, that kids are born with it, and okay. uh, they, they live with it throughout. Um, and understanding helps us provide that intervention, mm -hmm. and earlier the intervention, the better the outcome. Right. So if I get a child yeah. who's younger and I have all those risk factors that this child might have reading difficulties because those precursors to reading like phonological skills, I'm seeing that there is difficulty that, that this child is not hearing the sounds 
the way they should, um, they're not able to blend the sounds the way they should, then we know that they're a precursor. So if you can put that intervention early on, that helps with um, so, so let me give you like a, a great example. Um, and this, this comes across our practice as well. We'll get, we'll get medical doctors that are, are right now that are MDs and they can't keep up with some sort of demands in the, in the medical field. And they'll, they'll go for a neuropsych. The neuropsych might, may detect an underlying dyslexia or maybe like an ADHD. So my question is, let, let's say you're an adult that may have some sort of underlying difficulty but was never identified. How, how was that issue always there but maybe didn't manifest until you're an adult? Or so maybe it was uh, there, but they compensated, yeah. Yes, yes, that, exactly. So that's the word. They, they had compensations along the way. Somehow they compensated for the difficulties that they had, right? So um, it's not that they didn't have it. They had it all along. They, they, you can become a doctor, but you still can be a very slow reader mm -hmm. and you might have developed some strategies of, you know, you know, taking notes or audiobooks or like, you know, any of those strategies where you can keep up with the test demands, put extra amount of hours, right? So sometimes these kids would put in two hours for a task that needed maybe 15, 20 minutes, to get it done. So you work extra hard and you get there, but at some point it starts mm -hmm. catching up. Right. And you cannot keep up because again, your your brain resources are, are, are only so much, right? So as demands increase and as a doctor, you have to take care of six different things. You cannot put in two hours for a 15 minute task, right? And so I, So to keep up with that, that becomes difficult. So as, as a guy, I always like to use sports analogies, which is not the best analogies. It's almost like maybe your child was playing soccer, um, you know, locally, but not at a profession, like not at a higher level league. And then maybe your child was able to get into, like they play middle school, high school soccer, which is great. But then they tried out for college, like say division three, they didn't make, you know, they didn't make it. They weren't good enough. Their performance, they're not able to keep up with the demands at a division three level, right? So, or maybe mm -hmm. let's say you were mm -hmm. a division one soccer pro um, and you graduate college and then you try to go to some sort of, um, you know, professional soccer uh, club or whatever, and you just can't hack it. Even though you were great in division one, you're now at a higher level that you just can't keep up performance wise, right? Absolutely. So, so it's just Absolutely. a demand. You get to, if you, as you rise and rise, your body kind of peaks at some point and just can't keep up, right? But if you, let's say your aspirations were, I'm, I don't want to be a professional soccer player and I'm okay, you know, being, uh, you know, being, doing well in division one and that's, that's the, as far as I can go, they're not going to have an issue. But if they keep going and going and then like, I, listen, uh, you know, like I'm, I'm a, I was a division one best soccer player um, at my college and, and I want to play pro soccer and I can't hack it, you know, um, then it becomes an issue, right? It's kind of like, kind of like that. It, yeah, something like that. And also mm -hmm. with, with all these things, there are, it's not in isolation, right? right. So there yeah. is, yeah. So you have reading difficulties, right? You can have dyslexia, but along with that, you can have difficulties with working memory or attention mm -hmm. or organization, right? 
as as you become an adult, the demands in general increase, mm-hmm. right? You might have kids, you have a family to take care of. There are so many other demands that you have to pay bills and you have to take care of. So doing all yep. that, the demands, not just at work, but in life, yes. become overwhelming. No, that's a really good point. And I don't really hear people talking about that as, as much because it's really our, our jobs don't really occur in isolation um, because how well you slept the night before can affect your performance, yeah. right? It yeah. Could, and, and these days I would yeah. say sleep, yeah. um, eating, yeah. especially for teenagers and yeah. screen time. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. so you really have to look at the full, the full, the full picture um, to really understand, yeah. uh, you know, how our kind of hygiene or, you know, how, how we're dealing with certain issues, how that can spill over into our performance. Um, so, let, so, okay. So what are, you know, in general, let's say I'm a parent, let's say I'm seeing some signs that my, my child might have some attentional learning issues. And I know this really is so general because it can depend if your child's two years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, 20 years old. It really varies based on the lifespan of what those symptoms are. Um, but if you just had to, like just some rules of thumb in general, kind of regardless maybe of the child's age where, you know, maybe the parent, you know, a lot of times parents, they parents, they, they go to pediatricians and, you know, and sometimes pediatricians will say, yeah, you should speak with a psychologist or sometimes pediatricians are just like, you know, like wait and see. Um, what, what are the, some of those gut things that you think maybe, maybe the parents, right. And they should listen to their gut instinct and maybe reach out to a, a neuropsychologist to see if, if maybe they should pursue a neuropsychological evaluation. I would say, you know, once this kid, I mean, a, a two-year-old, if there is a difficulty and the pediatrician is not saying, it is very difficult for parents to know because right. in terms of development for two years old, it's it varies so much, mm-hmm. right? So a, a one child could have ex- great motor skills but lags behind a little bit with language skills and the other one might have great language skills but lags behind in motor skills. Like, And, and then they catch up. So mm-hmm. for two-year-olds, it becomes very difficult unless there is a significant difficulty. But as the kid starts going to school and Mm -hmm. and teachers bring up concerns so Mm -hmm. if a teacher starts saying that you know joey's not able to keep up with the demands even if it is a preschool sitting in circles for meeting time now again a three-year-old there is a certain level like you know not three-year-olds can just sit there for 20 minutes they -hmm. will move around but what is that extent can he do like other three-year-olds or she do like other three-year-olds what are the concerns that teachers are bringing up right Mm -hmm. and and are they interfering with with joey's social skills and and making friends or playing with others um is it affecting his learning in the classroom whatever the teachers are doing is he able to keep up with that so keeping an eye on those things and having that conversation with the teacher Mm -hmm. and then if you feel like at that point as parents you start questioning and if you are questioning i feel like there is no downside to consulting just have a consult with these are the concerns. What do you think? And as a as a neuropsychologist, I get these phone calls often where mm-hmm. the parents will be like, "Do you think 
skin needs a, a evaluation at this point mm -hmm. and I would give them a breakdown of why I do or why I don't mm -hmm. um, and if it is not you know I'm, I'm feeling like this is not the right time you know in terms of development as I said because development varies when they're younger I'd be like no let's wait and see and and just keep monitoring closely with the teachers with the pediatrician and you know and then and then we can come back to it so in other words it's like the teacher the teachers they have reference points right they see your child in reference to children that are within the same age range um, they can reference yeah. the various behaviors um, and then if if a parent brings up concerns it kind of means that your child is doing something from the norm, from the class, that might not be acceptable. Now, whether the teacher's right or wrong, you, you should, you know, even if you don't like your child's teacher, you should still take that input seriously, and it's okay to get a third-person opinion. doesn't mean that you necessarily have to go all the way and do an evaluation, but there's no harm just at least reaching out to a, a qualified uh, neuropsychologist that, works with that age group just to get some sort of you know objective feedback just to see maybe what yeah. what should be done okay so that's really helpful Absolutely. Uh, okay so that's great um and then just one last question this is there's a lot of a lot of information um about the field of neuropsychology and your practice now so you work with the child they get a report and and your reports are wonderful by the way um now they get they get through these reports and 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 then so like you know here's the report it's like but not not you but like it's not like all right see you later have a good day they get this report and obviously you discuss the the results mm -hmm. now what what can a family do once once you discuss the results like what, what power do families have with with this written report so that that is a that is a great question because neuropsychology in my eyes is not just the evaluation mm -hmm. like you know uh, this testing they are standardized anyone can do it. it as I said the understanding of the process of how the testing is done but the most important piece is the report the feedback the intervention plan and what needs to be done right so uh, once the and, and families there, there's only a certain amount of so you can sit with the families help them understand this first mm -hmm. of all that's the first step because it's 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 a lot it's a lot of you know, um, areas that has been tested. It's mm -hmm. a lot to take it all in and understand what that means. Um, and then what needs to be done. So once we have a clear picture of, okay, so this is where the difficulty lies, right? So the difficulty is in sustaining attention, working memory, organization, plan, right? So we figured that out. That mm -hmm. is where all the difficulties are coming from in terms of learning in the classroom. So what can be done within the classroom setting? what can be done at home, what kind of interventions does, does the child need, if there is tutoring that the child needs, like what is it, what is the plan for Joey to progress? And to get that help, because the parents don't know where to get the help, right? So right, to help yep. them get the support and interventions that they need and who they can reach out to. Um, the other piece is reaching out to the schools. So that is something that I do all the time is talking to the teachers, talking to the school psychologists, putting the, those interventions in place in the classroom and school. 
Yeah, and one last piece I'm going to add on, which is a whole other discussion, is um, if they take that plan and let's say they either want to modify the IEP and parents, people are say, what was an IEP? It's an individualized educational plan. Any student in the United States that has, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but if they have a significant learning issue and is documented, they're, they're eligible for an IEP, whether it's through the public school or mm -hmm. if they go privately. Um, what's what I know I can hands down everyone's gonna agree with this that um, that if you are opening a new IP or you're modifying an existing IEP and you take a well-written neuropsych evaluation and you try to translate those goals into the IP and it's well worded, you now have a legal document that will help support your child for the upcoming year or years. And I think that's um, on, on my end, when we work with families, I know the, the neuropsych is, is invaluable in so many different ways, but that one piece that I always tell parents is that you, you're basically, you're, you're updating or you're improving a legal document that the school has to follow. Um, and, and, and that's the power of, yes. the, of the neuropsychological evaluation. You're now, the accountability now has been upped. Um, and it's not just, you know, uh, you're, Right. So can you just talk a little, a little bit about that as well? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think uh, with the IEP, it is extremely important for the neuropsychologist to explain the results in the IEP meeting, because for, for parents to do that, it's very difficult. Oh, absolutely. Um, and the training who is running the IEP meeting, it varies. Um, and their understanding of all the aspects of, of an evaluation might be very different in, in what they experience and what experience they have in terms of educational background. So mm -hmm. it becomes very important for the person who's done the evaluation, who understands the child to be there to advocate and make sure that the needs are put in the IEP and, and the interventions are put in place. So um, yes, the reports go to the school, the, the parents can share that um, to create the IEP or modify the IEP. And as a neuropsychologist, it, it becomes very important to explain the results to the IEP team. Yeah, and I think that's something that sometimes it's overlooked um, where parents, they think, all right, I got the report and like, that's it. But you also, if again, if they're opening or modifying the IEP, there's a translation piece, which is crucial because you yeah. can have a beautiful report. And if that is not translated well into the IEP, then you, it kind of defeats the purpose of, of the uh, neuropsych in terms of modifying or updating those IEP goals, right? Um, yeah, and, and as I said, right, you know, it could be an average score, but yeah. that getting that average score took so much out of Joey that that it was, you know, that he needs support in that. Otherwise, as the demands increase, it, it's, he's not going to keep up with it. Absolutely. So that, that, um, that understanding to impart that and talk about that in the IEP meeting becomes extremely important. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pritika. We really appreciate you. We learned so much about uh, the field of psychology, neuropsychology, neuropsychological evaluations. Um, for those that have um, tuned in, please like us on, on YouTube. And at the bottom, we will have uh, Dr. Pritika's website as well. So you can reach out to her if you have any questions. And, and hopefully, we'll, with this so much to discuss, hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a 
a great discussion. I loved doing it. Thank you.